1: if
2: you don't laugh, you're going to go on a killing spree to sharpen the
0: Confidence of a hero
1: or a fool, I wasn't exactly certain which.
0: Could not be more professional. It's one to my life that's okay. It means something, it means something. away. You know, that's my take on it with what's yours. So. Protonic rivers all. That's like a science thing, right? Indeed, indeed, indeed. It's a science thing. This is a science place. It's all happening. You are here, I am here. It's time for the one, the only... Protonic Reversal. Welcome to it. So, tonight's guest needs no introduction. Good, here. I'm introducing him. Uh, returning to the show after a 100-plus eh, episode stretch of inactivity, on the part of us talking to him, not inactivity as far as him actually doing stuff, is going to be Mr. Steve Albini. Yeah! Looking forward to that. So we're going to, uh, we got no new Josh tonight, so I'm going to uh, go ahead and we're going to play a shellac song and we're just going to get right to it. So uh, let's rock. We're back in a couple minutes with Steve. Joining us now for the first time in four and a half years, something along those lines, is uh, Mr. Steve Albini. Steve, welcome. Welcome to the show. It's good to have you back.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: It's been a minute, man. Uh, We spoke, you know, sometime back when, back when it was still a morning show way back when, and then uh, (laughs) drive time, as you know. And we also uh, talked a little bit, like, you know, now and in between. But on the show, the one thing that—you uh, you, you ruined my, my perfect set for the 100th episode. That's that's. Yeah, I apologize. Inadvertently ruined. It wasn't a—to yeah. my knowledge, it wasn't a direct ruination, uh,
1: which was just some— No, I didn't plot your demise. That's, <laughs> the, I can't remember what happened, but something happened.
0: There were some crossed wires, and it's fine. And, and it was an objectively ridiculous thing to do, which is to— you know, it's objectively ridiculous thing to have done with a crew of people, but for one person basically running the technical aspect of it, it was incredibly crazy. And other than that, it it it, it did land. But it, it's great to have you back. I realized that was about a year ago, so we've been kind of going back and forth to getting you back on since then. Uh, I'm really glad to have you back now, man. Well, thank you. You've been very busy. You have uh, you won the World Series of Poker since last week you were on the show.
1: uh uh-huh. Right, that sounds bigger than it is, but uh, I won one of 60 events that is at the World Series of Poker. I didn't win the main event, which is the big one that is televised and that everybody talks about all the time. I won one of the subordinate events in uh, an archaic game called Seven Card Stud. But I did win a bracelet at the World Series of Poker and very few people can say that historically.
0: So it's like it's like when you win a Grammy, but it's for best Belgian documentary or something yeah. along those lines. And that's it's... <laughs> a,
1: that's a pretty good uh, pretty good analogy. It's more like a technical Oscar, you know?
0: <laughs> right, like it shows up on the website. Everybody's aware of it, but you you don't get yeah. to get played off by the crowd when you go over long.
1: Right. Well, I'll give you an exa- an idea of how. Uh, of how uh, subordinate this bracelet was relative to the other ones. Like a big field tournament at the World Series of Poker will have, you know, over a thousand, sometimes several thousand people running in it. Um, mine had, I want to say 300, (laughs) so 300, 300 people in the tournament. So I, I did beat hundreds of people literally, but, uh, I didn't have to beat them individually. A lot of them busted themselves before I ever met them. So
0: right so it's a it's a cast of hundreds not a cast of thousands, but still it's a
1: right <laughs> and um when they when you win a bracelet, they have a little ceremony the next day they sort of in a in a break in the action during all the other tournaments, they have you come up on a little podium and they give you the bracelet and they uh, announce you to the crowd and you show it to the crowd, and everybody applauds and um and there are a lot of events. Like there are over I want to say there are sixty plus events over the course of the World Series. And mine was sort of dead in the middle. I was at event thirty one. Um, so people had already been hearing every day they'd drag another two fools up there and say, Hey yeah, this guy won a bracelet, this guy won a bracelet, this guy won a bracelet, and this guy won a bracelet, you know. And the guy that was up the on the podium with me. Um, had won one of the several dozen no limit hold'em events that they have over the course of the summer. Just you know, some random hold'em event winner, and he won something like one point seven million dollars for his bracelet. Wow! Yeah, and then the and then the guy comes to me and. Here's Steve Albini, and he won. He beat three hundred people, and he he won a hundred and six thousand dollars. <laughs> you know, like it's like the first time ever that a hundred and six thousand dollars sounded puny to me.
0: Right, right. <laughs> and here's <laughs> Little Donnie with his volcano science fair project. Oh well, yeah, great. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> this guy just invented the H bomb, and you're talking about this volcano, <laughs> huh? Uh, but still, I mean, that's that's no. That's no small feat, and it's no it's no, no small the, sum of money just by compar- comparison and contrast. No, no,
1: no, no. Don't get me wrong. I'm I'm enormously gratified by the, the fact that I was able to win a bracelet. It's I mean I you know every year I go there and I try hard, and but it, I never imagined that I would actually win a bracelet. I always, I, I want to do well. I want to make money, and um, you know I want to get better. And I you know, winning a bracelet is it, it, you you can't do it if you're terrible. Mm-hmm. But every year there are semi-professional or amateur players like me that win bracelets, and that that's an indication that it's not out of the re- out of the the reach of anyone who plays poker seriously.
0: Sure. You know? Well, and that's so. Is that something where you consider poker like a thing you do mostly for fun? Uh, you know, obviously, if you're, if you're winning bracelets, there's some degree of you know. There's people that probably devote their entire lives to it, and that's all they do. Maybe they golf, but you know they yeah.
1: Well. Well, it's very similar to golf in, in one way. Like, there there are great players who've gone through their whole career and never scored a hole-in-one, you know? And right. there are great poker players who have gone through an entire career and never won a World Series bracelet. And, you know, and contra that, there are, you know, amateur players who every year there are amateur players who hit a hole-in-one. Our drummer in the band I'm in, Todd Trainer, he hit a hole-in-one this spring no a couple of months before I won a bracelet. So it, there is an, an analog there. Like you can't hit a hole in one if you're a duffer, you know, if you just, if you have a, a terrible drive and you know, you don't, you can't aim or, or you have an awful stroke. You, you can't hit a hole in one, but you can do everything perfectly time and time again and never get a hole in
0: right, one. Right. Because some things know? are environmental factors. Some things just depend on yeah. you know the context almost.
1: Yeah. Uh, so there, there is that parallel, but, um, yeah uh as far as my interest in the game is concerned like the the main thing that intrigues me about poker is that uh, it it forces me to think in ways that i don't think otherwise it forces me to consider like what are other people's true motives versus their purported motives like what you know there's a there's an element of deception in, in in poker that's built into the game, where people are trying to deceive you, or they're trying to be inscrutable, and you have to deduce what's actually going on from the things that they have been uncareful about. You know, um, and I don't do a lot of thinking like that in my regular life. And as far as my play is concerned, I'm I try to be inscrutable, and I try to be you know, like a, a a blank slate when I'm playing. Um, I don't I don't want other people to be able to discern what's going on in my head from what I'm doing physically. Um, and I don't I don't f- behave that way in my normal life. In my normal life, I'm not a defensive or secretive person. Uh, and, right. Right. You know, and I I feel like the the thing that makes poker useful to me, or, or interesting to me, is that um, I'm, I'm never going to behave deceptively. I'm never going to try to trick other people out of their money. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm never going to try to mislead people with my actions or my behavior in my normal life. So there's a. it's nice that there is a game where I can exercise those parts of not my personality but my uh, my skill set uh, and also exercise a sort of analytical part of my brain, which I, I don't need to do in my day-to-day life. Like, I, I, don't, I don't need to try to figure other people out very often. If I'm curious what someone's thinking, I'll just ask him, you know.
0: Which is a lot easier in most situations, yeah. yes. <laughs> well, and that's something that it, it, it's— I would imagine it's almost like exercising different muscle groups, <laughs> you know. If you if you don't use them, like it's something that, it probably is you know useful for cognition, to mm-hmm. uh, especially if you have something that's that's generally repetitive.
1: And you know, as I'm as I get on in years, it's imp- it's important to keep the brain active so <laughs> I don't get so I don't go potty in the head.
0: <laughs> right. Of course, and that's that's always a nice thing. It's it's always nice to keep sharp.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah, but I'm. I'm certain I'll be playing poker my whole life. It's a. It, I find it an infinitely fascinating game.
0: But you, you t- took to it because you enjoyed it. Like you just, it was something you found enjoyable. It wasn't because you yeah, had a but greater aspirations necessarily.
1: E- yes. Exactly. I mean, I do it because I find it in, immensely engaging. But at this point, the the money is significant, and I do rely on it in my. Normal life, like I, I do, factor in what I'm going to make playing poker as really? part of my expect. Yeah, as part of my expectation of income, and you know you have to do accounting on it because you have to pay taxes on it. So you end up having records year after year, and and so you can see the the your progression as a player, and you can see when you've had a good year and and when you've had a bad year, and you you have to be kind of cold blooded about it, you know, and. Honestly, poker might be the only thing in my life that I do for money. Like, huh. if there was no money in the game, if there was no money in it, it's not, it's not the same game. Like, people don't take decisions seriously if it's not going to cost them anything. So, in order for the game to have meaning, you, you have to have money on the line.
0: So how do Where's you reconcile? Co- I was just gonna say, how do you reconcile that with with running a studio, though? I mean, that's there's obviously you know you got to keep the lights on, you got to keep the the machine rolling. Is it are you, are- right?
1: I mean, well, that's the thing is running a studio is nothing like playing poker. Ru- running a studio is a business.
0: <laughs> We're here to tell you, folks, these are different things.
1: <laughs> yeah, poker has its own own, you know, its own ecosystem and its own rules, and running a business is, you know, it's a nuisance. But there are parameters that you can understand as long as you spend less money on a monthly basis than you earn, then you'll be okay. It's just that's really fucking hard to do, you know. Mm. In a business where you're competing not with other studios but with, you know, an app you can download for free, then it's really hard to convince people that there's enough value in hiring a studio that you can – Cover your nut, you know.
0: Totally, and and I I'm sorry if you you wanted to lose day more on the, on the poker thing. I didn't mean to immediately dance away from it. But
1: no, no, I'm I'm
0: cool. I, I just think it's interesting because you you mentioned that it, you know being the only thing you actually really do for money. Uh, I mean, so would yeah. you would you consider would you can say that you you still do recording mostly as a labor of love? Then,
1: well, it, it's sort of like I I set my sales. 20 odd years ago and I'm, I just haven't jumped off the boat, you know, like I'm still making records every day because that's what I do for a living. Mm -hmm. Um, and I also find it immensely satisfying work. Um, and to try to do anything else at this stage would be an enormous upheaval. And, uh, so unless something forces my hand, I'll, I'll probably be making records until I retire.
0: Right, you're not going to be opening up Steve Albini's sandwich shop or something <laughs> anytime soon. <laughs> well, uh, there,
1: we there's a coffee drink we make here at the studio called oh. Fluffy Coffee. I don't know if you're familiar. It's a delicious coffee drink. And uh, I'm certain that it, that if I had just opened up a little cabana someplace and made those drinks for people, I would have – and bypassed the whole studio thing um, – I'd be an awful lot more secure in myself and, <laughs> and have a lot more money to burn. They
0: are delicious. I, I have had one, and I was pleasantly surprised. Even with the, uh, I, I'm not going to say hype, but the uh, the talk up from uh, friends and compatriots about it It was, mm-hmm. it was it, all ex- expectations solidly met.
1: Yeah. So yeah, if I if I had known that we were going to come up with a, the fluffy coffee, and then I could have just you know I could have saved millions. You know,
0: it's partly <laughs> that into a career, and then <laughs> yeah.
1: Seriously, just, you know, a couple of little cabanas on the lakeshore. Yeah. Don't need Selling to do joggers, much. Iced fluffies every summer. God.
0: Well, and I feel like a lot of places... are rolling in it. I feel like a lot of places kind of get away from the fact that if you just do one thing well, like, people... You don't need to do everything for everyone. You're going to be nothing to no one that way. And, and like, I love those sort of single-use, single-purpose shops. Be they, like, yeah, like, just, like, a little... Lean to, I lean to is probably the, sounds a little less professional than I would be going for, but you know what I mean. Just a thing that does the one thing really well. I mean, gosh, it's almost like a lost art these days.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, the, the there's a there's a risk to specialization is that that people are going to lose interest in that one thing and then you're done. You know, like right. the other day I. There used to be two competing magic shops that were a couple of blocks away from each other in Chicago. Like literally I like I love it. There's a there's a magic shop and then around the corner there's a magic shop, right? In, up, up here in Andersonville. And uh when I, I had occasion to go by and walk through that neighborhood and I walked by one of the magic shops and it looked like it was on its last legs. So it was you know, it was kind of dusty and you know, I couldn't really tell if it was open even. it just, you know, still had the sign out. and It still seemed to be a going enterprise, but I couldn't really tell. It was happened to be closed that, at that moment. And then I walked around the corner to where the other magic shop was, and its windows were all papered over, and it, it was definitely out of business. And I thought to myself, you know, if only magic had, you know, not been so dumb. Then those both of those guys could have stayed in business,
0: you know. <laughs> right, exactly. Every,
1: every, and you know that the one that closed, <laughs> the one that closed first, like there was like this intense moment of spiteful gratification when that,
0: you know. <laughs> right. Uh, I
1: finally got McCluskey. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: told him twenty years ago, when we opened this shop, I'd bury him. <laughs> <clears throat> So I think that's interesting that uh, you have a much different idea of the usage of the internet at large and how it's changed music Mm -hmm. and changed music discovery than a lot of folks. And I think it's an interesting one, one that I personally share. Uh, Mm. I I, I know a lot of people are, you know, there's certain parties that have internet screeds about it, uh, talking about loss of Mm -hmm. monetization and things along those lines. But you're coming at it from a very different place. Could you speak a little bit to that?
1: Yeah. I mean, the people that are complaining about the way the Internet treats music and other artistic content are the people who used to make a living exploiting the scarcity of that stuff, you know? Like people in the distribution chain of physical phonograph records and CDs. Well, they had it great for a while there when, you know, the only way you could hear a band was to go buy a record. Uh, but that's not the only way that you can hear music now, and um, because it's uphen- upended their fiefdom, they think that there is something intrinsically wrong or inherently wrong with that. And I, on the other hand, as a consumer, as a fan of music, and as a a person who, like my day-to-day operation, I'm working with bands who are you know active street-level working musicians. I see that as as a fundamentally great thing, that all of the barriers to exposure have been removed, and, you know, there's no longer a monolithic industry preventing people from listening to a band, and anybody that, if you're in a band and you want to get your music out to the rest of the world, it used to be that you had to do a professional recording, and get jackets printed up and records pressed up and then put them, you know, haul the boxes upstairs into your apartment and, <laughs> and try to convince record stores to buy them from you over the phone and, you know, then hope that they ended up in a town where people were into that kind of music and in the right shop for people to go find them. And and then eventually, maybe somebody would hear your band and like it. And, you know, it was just such a, a, uh, a disjoint practice. And now, if you're... If you and a guy come up with a cool song in in your basement, you can record it on your cell phone and post it on YouTube that evening, and the next morning you can, you know, a million people could have seen it, you know? I think that's, I just cannot fathom a way that that's bad, or that that there's, that the old way is in any way better than that, you know? Well, Um, it's true that, you know, there's less money in making records now, right, and that that's from the top down to the bottom, like from the big record labels are now not big record labels anymore and and smaller record labels don't exist. And, you know, the the few boutique enterprises that are making records are now boiled down to a very hard core of people who are making records because it is a passion for them. And I, again, I just can't see that. I can't construct a mental picture where that is anything but just a good thing, that the people who are making records now are people who are driven to make records as opposed to people people who are making records out of habit, you know?
0: Well, yeah, I think the only thing, that the only argument that I've heard that remotely, uh, it doesn't even necessarily contradict it, it's just another factor, is that because the barrier of entry is so low now, there's a kind of, it's a fire hose of information. There's And that's not yeah. just with music. That's everything these sure. days. And because of that, filtering has changed. I mean, it, it seems to change like every couple months, as far as just how people find out about new things. And while well, the-
1: okay, I, I appreciate that. Yes, there is a lot of it, right? But th- there is a there's an excre- extremely efficient engine for sorting things that operates as a, a a hive mind or as a you know as a the the sort of cumulative effects of everybody weighing in on everything, uh, which is another feature of the Internet, is that everyone is allowed an opinion, and everyone has a platform to express that opinion, it is that things that are of interest to you, generally speaking, find their way to you. And things that are not of interest to you, you can conveniently ignore. Um uh, and the one really good example of this is um in the physical media era there were a lot of bands that put out records in a kind of a perfunctory way like a very small edition of records would come out because that's all they could afford to do maybe they had some local interests you know maybe they the bulk of the pressing sat in the basement somewhere or whatever now <laughs> yes. if any of those if any of those <laughs> records are of interest to anybody It's probably been digitized and posted on YouTube. And then through the enthusiasm of other people liking it, like-minded people will find out about it. And there's just an extraordinary number of lost music, music that had gone unheard for a long time. There's an extraordinary number of these things that are out there now that are now in general circulation, and pretty much anyone can hear them. And I'm, you know, we're discovering all kinds of things that didn't, that never had an airing in their original lifetime, but that are now uh, being exposed and people are able to find them. Um, I'll, I'll give you one example. That, I mean, there are a lot of examples, but I'll give you one example. Um, Nick Drake's mother, Molly Drake, recorded a bunch of songs at home uh, that were never commercially released. Yeah. Um, these recordings eventually made their way to someone who heard them and recognized them as being valuable. And there was later uh, an edition pressed up of this these recordings as, a, as an album. And the album is stunning, not just because it's beautiful songs beautifully sung, but because you can clearly hear that Nick Drake is mimicking Molly Drake in his vocal delivery and in his musical phrasing. We have, we have learned something about Nick Drake through the ghost of his mother's music, which would never have existed. And, you know, were it not for somebody taking an interest in it, in this sort of marginal way. And there are, whole record labels. You know, there's the Numero Group, there's Temporary Viaduct, there are are whole record labels whose reason for being now is that they are discovering these once-lost pieces of music tracking down the original masters and doing editions of them so people can hear them again, you know? And if things like that can happen, if an unreleased set of recordings from under someone's sofa can make their way out into the international music scene, then I'm convinced that if your band does something of, of note, it has the potential to find an audience now that it didn't previously.
0: Well, certainly. And I think that there's other examples on a on a different level, too. I mean, This Heat is a good one. Uh, yeah. The band Death from Detroit. that yeah. Never, never would have been. You know, if the situation... And avenues for discovery and consumption weren't the way they are now. They just—they never would have had this resurgence. They never would have necessarily had sure. the ability to connect with their natural audience, even if it's like years so, and years later.
1: Right. So I mean that those are those are fairly big examples, but I think that there are smaller and like more mundane examples that are also valid. Like the band Pegboy from Chicago yes. were. Um, Sort of mainstay punk band in the da band. 90s. <laughs> yeah, dub band. They were the Bears band. Um, so, uh, and they recently were able to do a South American tour.
0: Oh, wow, and, really? You know, That's
1: awesome. In the, awesome. the full, full maturity of their existence, they haven't put a record out in forever, right? Right, right. But their music has circulated in these. Enthusiast pools where one guy copies a record to a thing, links it to another guy, that guy says, Hey, I know who would like this, and he links it to another guy. And then eventually they built an audience that was enthusiastic enough that it could fly them to frickin' Brazil. You know? Yeah, not bad. (laughs) That's incredible. Not bad. That's incredible. Absolutely. They got Larry up off the couch and put him on an airplane and sent him
0: to Brazil. (laughs) Which is a minor thing in and of itself, yes. (laughs) So, uh, and and that's which is and these are all wonderful examples. But of course, everything being kind of naturally available all the time, always, it does mean that there's it's almost like a (laughs) it's almost like a lottery to win someone's attention uh, these days for unknown commodities. I should say
1: in the short term. Yes, there's a lot of information in the short term. In the long term, it's all available, and if any of it is interesting, it'll probably make its way to you. So, I mean, I, that's—I mean, I have—I have confidence in that, if only because I keep discovering things that I absolutely didn't know existed,
0: every day. I mean, I, I, I'm baffled by people that that. Yeah, like, oh, there's no there's nothing good to listen to anymore. I'm like, well, you you clearly are just, you know, not trying or just not yeah. listening I mean, at all. It's amazing. Music
1: isn't a spectator sport.
0: It's <laughs> <laughs> good. That's good.
1: They're not doing it all for your benefit. You're if you take an interest in it and you do, you know, even a small amount of the leg leg work, you can find an infinitely satisfying array of stuff out there. If you just sit on the couch and wait for something to come at you, then what's going to come at you is the stuff that someone has a business interest in promoting to you. You know? So and that well, and that, generally speaking, is stuff that can't survive on its merits.
0: So on that, something I find interesting is that as people kind of push towards streaming services and not necessarily owning the music, but having it available for mm. them to stream off of these, these very popular services, none of which I personally use, but I know are very popular.
1: It's I know, weird. I know they're popular, but I, I don't know anybody that listens to music that way except in the car.
0: Oh, really? I actually know I know a good amount. I, I'd say it's 30-40% of my friend base personally, but I don't
1: I, I know that a there's choice. a whole generation of people for whom the physical media is kind of anathema, and, and I, I understand that, you know, like the younger someone is, the more likely it is that their engagement with music is all through their phone. Correct. Um, so, you know, but uh, I I still think that's legitimate engagement and all the things that I said still apply because the regular internet still goes to phones.
0: Well, sure. And uh, I think for me, where I'm coming from is with these services, I've noticed a push in the past couple years towards a sort of self-curation uh, and and kind of shepherding of listeners, of which that's only going to work for a certain segment of the population. For the, your more mm-hmm. dedicated music listener, they're still going to look at it and be like, yeah, I don't care about that. But it, right. it kind of seems like these companies have sort of set themselves up as as the new gatekeepers for, no, you need to be listening to this, you need to be listening to that. I, ag-
1: I agree, and I think that for that reason, they are doomed. Like, really? I, I don't know if you agree with this perspective, but it seems to me that the the next logical progression from these streaming services that have a pen of material that a pool of material that they can play for you the the next most logical thing is to have some kind of an autonomous app that will ah, search the internet at large for music that you're interested in and play it for you that doesn't, you know, whether it's on a streaming service or it's resident on somebody's web page or whether it's part of Mm. some database someplace that it has access to, it seems to me that these streaming services are a kind of a half measure in the same way that the CD was a half measure of digital music. Like, yes, it was more efficient in packing than an LP was, but it's still a physical object that has a limited menu on it. Mm -hmm. So when you take digital to its next, the extension of that is that you have an enormous library that you can add to at any time, and that's what the iPod was. And then the extension of that is that you have an infinite uh, or uh, apparently infinite uh, streaming of a massive catalog of material that is available to the different streaming services and then the you know the next generation from that is you have some kind of aggregation of these streaming services where you know you'll have multiple input streams for your listening pleasure and then the extension of that is that you would have something that would autonomously search all over the internet for whatever you happen to want and it wouldn't care whether it was coming from a stream or some some other location it would just be available to you
0: interesting and
1: and i think that that is an inevitable thing someone will inevitably make such a thing and at that point the streaming services will be seen as being crippled relative to this new thing, in the same way that CDs are seen as being crippled relative to streaming.
0: With the obligatory panic involved from those that are gonna be losing profits based upon new technology and, and, and something Yeah, that I takes mean there's an old them.
1: internet adage which is that, you know, when someone tries to prevent you from looking at something, they they call that censorship, right? It's not necessarily censorship, but let's call it censorship for the purposes of the argument. Censorship is read by the internet as a failure mode, and the internet will then route around it mm-hmm. uh, and that and it does it almost automatically, you know in the same way that almost any copyrighted material that is not released electronically is eventually available electronically. you know there's a there's a thing I don't know if you if you're familiar with these, there are these set top boxes that are available that um, don't have any storage. Mm -hmm. They connect to the Internet, and they connect also to your television. And you basically, you tell it what you're looking for, whether it is a film or a political uh, debate or a news broadcast from a certain locale. Whatever it is, it can find it for you. Like if you want to see one particular inning of one particular baseball game from one era of history, you t- you tell it, you give it the search parameters and it will find it for you. Um, I'm trying to remember what, it's, what they're called, what these set-top boxes are called, but they're, um, one of the guys that works at the studio has one, another friend of mine has one, and it, you don't always get full HD quality but you get no, no. Some you you ref- get
0: something. you get something, and 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 what I've noticed is that just as with the DVR technology, you know what I'm talking about? I, I do. It,
1: and um, Source <laughs> Stream is the name of the most popular of these boxes. Yeah, I, I think Yeah,
0: and there there's a there is a name for for the thing, and you, you think I know it, but I I don't. But what I, what I think is interesting is just as your Directv and Xfinity, Comcast, and whatnot sort of adopted and stole the parts that they could use from TiVo for the whole Mm -hmm. DVR functionality, I've noticed that there's a trend towards adopting certain parts of that technology that they can sort of monetize and put their own purposeful obsolescence into as a selling feature for their new widget that I'm certain, you know, probably catalogs that information for Lord knows what purpose. (laughs) <laughs> but takes the the sort of innovation of these uh, devices and kind of puts them towards their services specifically, putting them in the wall garden of uh, you know their their device.
1: I understand that, but I'm, my point being that this unbounded device already exists right. for video content,
0: so, so it's, it's not can, a stretch to think that it could be something for audio as well.
1: I mean, it seems like the technology already exists, and it just and in the video domain it's taken the form of a set top box right but there's no reason that it couldn't be an app and there's also no reason that that app couldn't be on every phone even if it's you know a, a blacklisted app or something like that you, you know all, there there's no reason why that couldn't that technology couldn't be ported to being you have an infinite universal library of music at your fingertips for free
0: sure i mean i I think back to the days when my my time was valueless but i had i had the extreme desire to you know acquire certain movies or or certain Mm -hmm. uh uh, certain audio that was not available at like the local record shop and while it's a different case now like i would find people that had these records and i would tape it off of them and I i think in that same way that you know, people. now What's in nature will find a way, right? I think yeah. we, I think we can kind of uh, apply those same terms towards it, as long as it's something that isn't like legally kiboshed. I could, I could see that becoming
1: uh, well. Okay, let's let's think about that as a as a postulate for a moment. How do you stop something that doesn't that isn't and doesn't have, store anything? Mm-hmm. How do you stop something that's just a piece of code? You know, it, it, it's really like the, it's at the limit of what laws are capable of doing, and I, I think that it, it is inevitable that the law will have to adapt to that, rather than that will be bound by the law.
0: Right, cause would, and
1: I feel like and I feel like the industry, like the music business, I'm. I'm I don't have much truck with the music business, other than that I happen to run a business that makes music, right? Um, but I think carping about these things or trying trying to stonewall these developments is would will be enormously frustrating and is fruitless and and will be fruitless. I think what what we need to do is we need to adapt mm-hmm. to these conditions as they change, and I feel like that mentality of me being willing to adapt to a changing environment is one of the things that's allowed me longevity. You know, our studio has survived for more than 20 years now, despite all of these changes that have made it financially much tougher. And the way that we've been able to survive is by being flexible. And that flexibility is partly mental, but also practical. Like if you're tied to a certain technology and you can only deal with that one technology in the way that this studio is tied to the analog processes, then you need to be able to accommodate the competing technologies. So we do host digital sessions here all the time. But you also need to be self-sufficient in the technology that... You're relying on that is we do our own maintenance and our own repairs here. Right. We have our own stock of spare parts. We have our you know we have our own technical shop where we can do diagnostics on our our equipment. We're not beholden to somebody else to, to keep things the way they were for us. We are enabling ourselves to maintain this older paradigm, and uh, and that's the willingness to do that is what I see lacking in the mainstream music business.
0: This refusal or a
1: <laughs> refusal to adapt and refusal to admit that yeah. the new ways of doing things should be accommodated. Right. They they they're just digging in their heels and saying no 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 it's wrong it's wrong. Yeah. And no one thinks it's wrong who uses it. <laughs> so Right, only your the... <laughs> audience for that is other people Your audience for that argument are other people who are as pissed off as you, right? And what's pissing you off is your impotence.
0: (laughs) It's a a very uh, and I, I was going to say this before you said the word impotence, but it's a very shrinking group of people (laughs) as well. (laughs) Yeah. So then, where do you feel? And, and and we we talked about this recently, as far as how does, uh, and we're talking about sort, sort of more with, with discovery and mm-hmm. usage, uh, it'd be more of a meritocracy and, and things like the filtration being. Well, I don't like that sourcing, term.
1: Right? I don't like the term meritocracy. It's, I, I feel okay. like meritocracy implies that there is a hierarchy of good and bad and the good stuff rises and the bad stuff sinks. I think that's bullshit. I think, especially when you're talking about a creative enterprise, where everyone in the room will have different tastes, and some people like chocolate and some people like Rocky Road. And what my point is that on on a per-user basis, you will be able to curate your experience with music in a kind of a boundless way, because it's all available to everybody. Right. And... And the tools will exist for you to fine-tune your experience of music to your tastes. Or, if you want to create an eclectic experience, you have the potential for the most eclectic experience, you know?
0: like Sort of like a self-authorship. Or, I mean, my people that... My friends that are, uh, that deal with art, absolutely hate the use of the word curation for anything other than mm-hmm. uh, the dictionary definition of the term, but... Sure. For lack of a better term, a, a sort of musical curation uh, based upon individual tastes and and entities. But
1: also, like, let's say, um, let's say such a, let's say there's a thing where you can create a channel that is playing music that you like.
0: Oh, like right? Radio Note, perhaps. Yes.
1: For example. <laughs> Just to pick an example out of the air. Uh, and then you you notice that your friends are doing that as well, where they're creating a channel. They've created a channel for themselves. And you can tune into their channel and sample their aesthetic for a moment. Say, hey, you know, actually, I'm I'm really in tune with this guy today. I do, in fact, only want to listen to dub instrumentals, you know, <laughs> all day today. And, and this guy's taste is really good. So then you... You get this curated experience from other enthusiasts, rather than from a marketing force mm-hmm. that's trying to profit from it. You're getting it from people who know what's good, and they're turning you on to it. You know, there, well, I, I had a, I, I wrote a little thing one time about how the value of record stores is that they have maniacs in them. And there's the one guy who's really into Britpop and the one guy who's really into handbag or the one guy that's really into, you know, Japanese noise or whatever. So if you're in, if you want, if you're curious about any of those things, there's a maniac that you can go to and say, Hey, (laughs) you know, get me started on some of this stuff. And he will pull out half a dozen records and burden you with them. But you know that those are being vouched for. Like, this guy is saying, yes, these are, are good ones, right?
0: I mean, so, yeah, I, as a former maniac myself, who used to, like, push Birthday Party and uh, Chrome Records on uh, unsuspecting young punks. Yeah, I, I can definitely... <laughs> I can okay. absolutely get down with so that. So
1: that's that's where the, the value in that comes from. and uh, And when there is a world where everyone... Every maniac can sculpt his listening experience to suit himself, and you can sample the menus of maniacs at will. Um, I, I just again, I just can't see how that is a bad development, and that seems like an inevitable development to me.
0: Hmm. So, where do you think about it in terms of the the this sort of overarching? Nostalgia trip that that seems to be coming out, whereas nostalgia is somewhat fetishized uh, as we lose
1: causality yeah, itself. I, <laughs> I mean, I hated nostalgia the first time. <laughs> nice. I, I hated happy days when it came on. I you know I hated all of that shit. I, I I'm not a nostalgic person by temperament. I don't spend a lot of time on memory lane. I'm you know I just I don't I don't find it rewarding. To wallow in things that have already happened, um, and I, I feel like casting things in this notion of you know the creeping nostalgia, where the 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 date indicator of the nostalgia boom just gradually increments every year, uh, is a, is doing a disservice to all the people who were distinctive during those eras. Right. You know what made the '80s, for example, an extremely fertile period, had nothing to do with it being the '80s. It was just a confluence of a bunch of extremely energetic people, you know, overperforming and overdelivering because they were inspired at the moment. And those individuals are what make it interesting, not the contemporaneous hairstyles or whatever.
0: <laughs> right. Well, it's sort of like recontextualizing things to almost revise history for like a narrative that never was quite there and kind of looking at it, you know, maybe as an idealized form that wasn't necessarily accurate for those that that were there.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I hated the eighties the first time, like the pop, the popular culture of the eighties was fucking atrocious. Right. The only thing that, the only stuff that was interesting was the underground. Right. And when eighties, when the eighties are being revived now in, minstrel um, w- what's being revived is all of the aspects of it that made me hate being alive during that era.
0: right like it's not the Minutemen and Devo and uh, you know like all oh, like the, the better aspects of it or the more interesting or, or daring aspects of it it's it's like exactly the opposite it's almost facile
1: <laughs> yeah you know it's the the, the Bears Super Bowl shuffle oh, and God. you know
0: <laughs> I forgot about that <laughs>
1: yeah I, I mean the, yeah, I just don't. I don't want to wallow in the stuff that I had to suffer through the first time.
0: Yeah, no, that's understandable. So, and it's interesting that we're you know talking about nostalgia and things being recontextualized. How is that? You know, we we kind of we are existing in a time now where people are looking at things with more of, in general, not just in music, but in society, with a greater Look towards uh, social justice and equal mm-hmm. rights and things, whereas things that would, you know, put it this way, the, the slobs versus snobs mentality of so many classic movies of the eighties, not all of them have aged very well,
1: right? And, and the, you know the and the sort of gratuitous sexual violence hasn't aged well either.
0: Exactly. <laughs> I'm thinking, yes, yeah, specifically. You know, gosh, I can't, I can't, can't believe I ever watched uh, what is it, Revenge of the Nerds. And was like, oh my god, this is this is this is this is sexual assault How, how did I not know this? And the answer was that, yeah. you know, no nobody nobody was was uh, was educating anybody about that. And so it was just you know, quote unquote, different times. Okay, but on that, what I found interesting and, and, and that I I disdain, frankly, is that the the lack of of nuance for certain things where. You know, again, talking in the same way of bringing together previous errors and taking their more uh, surface-level aspects and bringing them forward, you can kind of look at things uh, without context and without realizing, oh no, that was an allegory. That that was nuance. And I'm speaking of someone that like someone that like would listen to prayer to God, for instance, right, mm-hmm. and just take it completely upon face value and not look at it as like a you know, kind of a dark short story, if you will.
1: Yeah. I mean, I have to, I have to admit that it, it does concern me when I see dudes singing along to that song, uh, and getting into it. It it does. I do feel like, uh, I don't feel responsible for their stupidity, but I do feel some embarrassment at, uh, enabling it. And I at I do think that there are you know, I'm I'm fine with all subjects being fair game and you can write about anything you like and you know, if it's if it's done well, it can be engaging and enlightening. If it's done poorly, um then it then it's just a, another example of something that doesn't have its own doesn't have merit on its own you know uh and i'm i struggle personally with that demarcation and particularly in particular with historic material that i've done Mm -hmm. that portrays male excesses and male indulgence uh it concerns me that the comment aspect of that seems to have been disabled uh in a lot of people and i don't relish the idea that people are seeing them as heroic narratives rather than you know tragic or villainous
0: right because for i mean for me when i first heard that song i was like oh it's like a contemporary murder ballad You know, from from that great tradition. and how
1: how fucked up is it that there are murder ballots? Of course, yeah. Like, how (laughs) fucked up is that for a start, you know?
0: But then, you know, it did occur to me, even at the time, of like, oh, I could see where, you know, someone could potentially guilelessly look at this as like, yeah, a how-to guide or something, but that's just because people are, you know, inherently, you know, some folks just, you got to wonder about them. And I feel like that because of everybody being platformed now, you get people that almost aggressively search out for parts of culture and elevate them with with their own agenda
1: well they, people will try to justify their own craven thinking with you know any scrap of any permutation that they can hang their hat on you know and that's it, it's a tool of the right wing try to reframe things in a way that makes them sound like they're not awful. You know, like there are, you know, there are arguments about how like in the right-wing media, there are arguments about how Martin Luther King would not support the Black Lives Matter movement, which is absurd. (laughs) When (laughs) he actually spoke about uh, police violence against people of color in several famous speeches of his, right? It's clear that that's not what he would—that's not a position that he would hold. But some white dude will make that argument, Mm -hmm. you
0: know? Yeah, yeah. Trying to appropriate as needed.
1: Yeah, and so you can't defend against people choosing to misinterpret your life's work. But you can be chagrined when they do, you know.
0: Yeah, and I mean do you you know, some folks you can can maybe set right and some and some do you just have to be like, well, idiots gonna idiot? I mean how how is <laughs> how do you approach yeah. that?
1: <laughs> I mean
0: I'm laughing, it's not funny at all, but I'm just I'm laughing at the absurdity of it, is what it right. is. Right. Uh
1: you know, I'm I try to engage with people where they are and I'm happy to have a conversation with anybody at any time even in the middle of a show for example and that has transpired like I have had conversations with people in the middle of a show about the content of the show and uh, I don't you know those digressions can be irritating for people who aren't involved but I find them stimulating and I also think that it's worthwhile to be open to discussion and to be frank with people when the opportunity presents itself
0: you know? well and that comes down to I guess uh, worldview too I mean it, it, it seems to me like you've always uh, kind of treated punk rock as as a discussion and as as a two-way street an avenue of exchange to exchange ideas
1: if nothing else I would hope to be given credit for a worldview that values people who have historically had little power or no power relative to to people who have always been empowered and always had privilege, right? And like in my case, that was an awakening that came from my being involved in the music scene in the underground music scene in Chicago, which had very close ties with the gay community. Where of course recent right. were recent immigrants. It was one of the few places where they were welcomed as uh, part of the general eccentricity of that crowd, and where you know gender roles weren't presumed and things like that, like, I feel like punk rock opened my mind and made me a more caring, more even-handed person. I can see how after some iterations of a feedback loop in certain reaches of the punk rock world, how it would have the opposite effect. And that, you know, Bothers me, but that wasn't my experience. Like when you run into, you know, ex-Nazi, ex-Skinhead, hardcore wow. punk yeah. kids, that sort of thing. You know, that wasn't my experience, and and that sort of stuff was laughed at in my circles. But for some people, that was their awakening, and it bothers me that they're associated. But I, all I can do is, you know, make my case. If if it comes up,
0: you know. Right. And well, and, and what you speak of is, you know, just folks kinda using that as an avenue to sort of propel their confirmation bias into, you know, whatever yeah. <laughs> whatever worldview they've they've decided to adopt for themselves, which you, you, there's a you know, bucket one, bucket two kind of situation. And there, there can
1: right? be a and there can be a local feedback loop where, you know, their douchebag friends are encouraging encouraging their thinking and they're part of their peer group. And, uh, you know, and, you know, awful people tend to congregate together. Like if you fun if you find one asshole, he's probably got asshole friends.
0: <laughs> yeah. They assholes of a feather like to stick together, so to speak. <laughs> and so, yeah. And, and, and much in the same way that, and, and I felt that, in shellac, but also especially uh, with the big black stuff, some of it's such such clear and obvious dark satire that you know, almost to be, and I mean, actually, I mean, it's a compliment because I like the art form, uh, comic book like, right, overly mm-hmm. exaggerated, uh, and with with the you know this very focused visceral uh, hatred and things on there. But I mean, I think, and I don't know because I wasn't, I certainly came came was was not old enough and did not come to punk rock early enough to be able to. Understand the context at the time, but it seems like there was, there's a there's a danger uh, towards doing that in the fact that not everyone's going to uh, look at it as uh, with the intentions right. involved. Right. I guess is where I'm going I, at. That.
1: Yes, but I, I I'm I do think that that you don't make something better by assuming your audience is stupid and dumbing it down for right. them. I yes. don't think, I don't think you make anything better by doing that. <laughs> I feel like. If you, if you express your ideas as in the form that satisfies your creative impulse and other people don't get it, then, you know, some experiments fail. But it, at least in my case, I'm not doing it for other people. I'm sat, trying to satisfy the creative impulse that I have in the same way that when I'm hungry, I eat what looks good. And I think that's true or should be true for the majority of artists. Otherwise, their art is not representing their ideas in an honest way. And for me, I know this is true, that for me, that the art that has meant the most to me has been the most unfiltered, where, you know, the ideas, as they cross the threshold of the artist, he's expressing them in the way that satisfies the his creative impulse and and I can tell that that mania that has driven him to do it has caused has directed the, his output or the output, and that's that's to me the most enga- the art that I want to engage with the most is that, that that where I can learn something about the artist where I can I feel like I, I feel like I've gotten a, a means of communication with the artist.
0: Right, there's there's a lack of walls sort of built up to like, well, they're not going to know how to handle this, so let's just phrase it this way instead, or let's approach it this way. You kind of get a more um, something more honest, a little more real, and that yeah, and I mean, and it can can be awful. Don't get don't (laughs) get me wrong. it can
3: Definitely
1: ugly or awful or unpleasant, but you know, I, I would I appreciate having it given to me straight. You know
0: yeah and I think that that's so as that so in that in that in that vein, have there been any uh conversations or other artists that have come up to you that maybe people wouldn't necessarily think of that have sort of latched on to that uh you know that 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 nuanced worldview that 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 very like direct canon like uh force uh that you know appreciated that and that spoke to them that you that people wouldn't necessarily i mean obviously and, you know, there's some bands that of course, I mean, of course you're going to be working with Steve. Of course you're going to want to like get uh, gravitate towards that. But has there been anybody that people maybe wouldn't think of that like that sparked a conversation or uh kind of kind of brought in a different element of that directness?
1: Well, one thing that's kind of that surprised me on more than on more than a few occasions is that I found myself working with people with who are fairly devout religious people of all of many different denominations, um, and that always it always surprises me that that kind of thinking has survived. I mean, I have no <laughs> right. spiritual bent myself. Like <laughs> no, I, 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 don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't have any. I mean, I, I give none of that stuff any credence whatsoever. Like I don't, you know, I don't believe in lucky horseshoes. I don't believe in, you know that there are fairies in the garden, I don't believe that you know there are trolls under the bridge, I don't believe in any of that stuff. No no magic, no horoscopes, nothing. None of it, right? It all sounds trivial and ridiculous to me. So when someone comes to me in earnest wanting me to work on their music, and I can tell that it is coming from a place of legitimate spirituality, and by legitimate, I just mean that that's where the person—that's
0: their dogma. Driving. That's their. Ethos. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: it surprises me that such things exist still, and it surprises me that those that people like that would choose me to work on their music, and it surprises me that some of these relationships have ended up lasting a very long time. And we've, I've worked on several on you know multiple projects with them. I don't know how public some of these people are about this sort of stuff, so I don't necessarily want to name names, but sure, sure. Yeah, but I, uh, you know, that kind of thing surprises me. And um, I, I found that the creative impulse on those, on their part, is very similar to the creative impulse on the part of all the, the normal heathens that I work with on, a, on an otherwise day-to-day basis. <laughs> and so I, th- I think that the sense, the drive to, to create is innate. And I think it's universal. I think everybody, every creative person feels it in pretty much the same way.
0: Yeah, I mean, whether they're coming at it from, you know, being very devout, being a secular humanist, uh, you know, atheist and kind of a dick about it, you know, like whatever it does, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Like it's, it's, you're still going to have that, you know, you're going to have that level of engagement uh, with artists. You know, maybe you're going to, you know, some folks are very proud of saying that, Oh, I feel like I tapped into a conduit to the other world. Sure. Okay, sure. Right on. No.
1: I, I mean and again, I, I'm I'm fairly cold blooded about all that stuff. Like I I, I think know that you're you're responsible for the record you just made, you know. Like I, I don't <laughs> right. conduit I don't to the other to world. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you need to pawn that off on the hereafter. I think that was you, you know. <laughs> but uh, uh, Yeah, I I feel like just being open to letting other people express themselves in the manner that they want to allows me to engage with them on their terms. And that's the most legitimate way for me to experience them, you know?
0: And do you find that uh, because of the, the ease of use with home recording now that it's changed the creative process for a lot of bands where they're, you know, they're maybe not going to spend the entire time making the record with you, but they're going to maybe do overdubs at home or, uh, you know, you know, what's, cause you, you mentioned, of course, it being, you know, what more of a, when given the choice, of course, it, folks that want to go analog generally going to go analog, but you meant, you know, there is, there is digital at electrical audio. It does exist.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, I totally understand all the practical reasons that people do things digitally. It I you know the ease of use of a lot of that stuff uh, and the you know the flexibility of being able to do part of your session in a proper studio and part of it at home on your laptop. Like I understand all of that and I think all of those are you know perfectly valid rational reasons for decision making. So when someone comes to me and wants me to do the analog portion of a record that is ultimately going to be hybridized, that's fine with me. I feel like, I, you know, I, I don't want to maintain minute control over everything that passes under my hands. I'm happy to, you know, if somebody just wants to record, wants me to record the bass drum and they'll do the rest at home. That's that's totally fine with me, you know. I just, you know, I hope I do a good enough job that to justify their, you know, their, their investment. Right,
0: because you, you kind there of there are there are oh go ahead sorry.
1: some there are some techniques that could only exist in that kind of hybridized world. Um, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. There's a band that came in here, um, and essentially the entire performance of the band had been recorded in the guitar player's home studio. Um, He had recorded the direct signals of his bass and guitars uh, and had spent a long time getting the performances that he wanted precisely on those instruments. And then he re-channeled all of that stuff out through amplifiers in our studio. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Okay. Um, And... That way he could take advantage of the fact that we have you know, a couple dozen ampl- different amplifiers of various characteristics. And then he had his drummer play along to this pre-recorded performance that was now barking out of all of these loudspeakers and gave him a simulacrum of a full band performance Uh, So his drummer was being recorded acoustically while all this chaos was being broadcast around him. And it allowed them to do, you know, real-time changes in the sound and various bits and pieces. So that portion of the session was all done in the analog domain. But it was after it had all been recorded, then it was recaptured digitally. And they did all the finishing touches, all the extra singing and all the mixing and hoo-ha they did all of that on the computer offline at home so the total production of the record probably took them the better part of two months but the amount of time they spent in the studio to do it was only about three days
0: <laughs> right yeah because <laughs> everything pre-prepped and uh wow that's I'm, so, I'm trying to envision what that must be like i mean that's uh, that's well i mean it's counterintuitive a, to an, me but it's fine yeah
1: it was an it was an involved process that this fellow had worked out in his head and executed and it worked you know fair dues to the guy it totally worked he was able to get all of those sounds that he would couldn't get at home by coming into a fancy studio and doing it here and he You know, he did create a reasonable simulacrum of a live band performing. I can't, you know, I I can't say that he was wrong to do it that way. But that's something that could not have been done without all of the powerful digital tools that are available to everybody. Of course.
0: Yeah, there's there's no chance.
1: (laughs) That's a method of working that, you know, I have to allow. Of course, that's a, a totally valid way for you to make your record. You know, Uh, it's not something I would choose to do. And it's not something that seems like it would suit every kind of music. But for someone with a very specific vision and the patience to put it together that way, uh, I don't see why that's, you know, I'm I'm glad that that's not off the table. Right. It's
0: it's, it's no less valid than anything else. I mean, it's so I guess you have to almost adopt near absolute subjectivity towards what people bring in. Uh, in, this, in this day and age, uh, would you say? Or do you yeah, think that there are, are there some limits of just like, no, man, I'm not going to do that?
1: I mean, it's rare, it's ex- exceedingly rare for me to say no to a project. You know, it has happened, you know, a handful of times. I could count them on one hand where someone has proposed something and I've said no. It's, you know, and the the few times that it has happened, it has been either there was some fundamental thing about the music that seemed in a, where it seemed like my skills wouldn't be appropriate, like um, ill fitting, but
0: or, or whatever.
1: Yeah, where I wouldn't have, where I wouldn't have been able to do a good job, you know, and I didn't want them to waste their money. Um, and then there are, are some where people who I knew would be problematic for one reason or another, and I didn't want to subject the staff to those problems.
3: Mm, interesting. Uh,
1: but it's ex- it's exceedingly rare for me to say no to something.
0: And, and do you find that there are, like most of the bands that come in kind of have a very clear idea of what they're doing and they are are there to do the work or are, are some expecting to get more direction than they're...
1: Well, by I virtue said? of the fact that everybody can do some recording now, like everybody ha- typically shows up at the studio having already done at least some preliminary demo work on right. the material they're going to record. So it it does tend, bands do tend to arrive fairly well rehearsed and fairly well sorted with their material. Um, the stories that you hear about bands spending months in the studio in an indulgent sort of cocaine frenzy like those stories are from an an older era when (laughs) (laughs) records were records were being funded by a record business that had a lot of spare money to burn right and we never got any of that business to start with but that business model doesn't exist anymore like that that mode of behavior just doesn't exist anymore
0: which is fine I mean that's
1: that's hundred percent fine. Yeah, I 100% think hundred percent fine with it. I,
0: I think that era I mean, is is largely fetishized and uh, to the to the discredit of of a lot of actually very talented folks. Where you know the drugs had nothing to do with it. They just were making good right. records.
1: But you know, being frank, things like Fleetwood Mac are what. Made it necessary to have punk rock, is, you know, <laughs> right?
0: You got to have something to react against.
1: <laughs> and, you know, and I hated that stuff at the time. I hated all of that extremely mannered, extremely slick, very microscopically tweezed stuff. I just, you know, I hated that at the time, and I don't see that as anything to aspire to. Right. So. That it doesn't exist anymore, I don't really cry about.
0: It. Yeah, and if somebody wants to sort of build a simulacrum of that, it's it's hey, it's a lot easier to do that now. And you know, good on you, <laughs> as, yeah. long, as long as you're the right pick, yeah. the right person to do it, or uh, or, or how yeah,
1: I mean, and if you <laughs> if you if recreating the 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 sound and the experience of Steely Dan in the studio is important to you, you can probably do it. You know, it just seems like. It, you know, it seems like a stupid ambition. It's like, someday I'd love to have a sandwich. You know, okay, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, you can just make a sandwich, too. That'd be nice, also. You, you,
1: you, can, <laughs> you, can, probably, you can probably do that.
0: So, what's, what's your take overall with overdubs and, uh, like, like with vocal overdubs and uh, harmonies and, and things along those lines? Uh, how, how do you feel about
1: this? I'm happy to do whatever the band wants to do. Some bands conceive of their music in a a fairly naked form, and some bands conceive of their music as being heavily decorated. And I'm happy to do anything that anybody wants to do. Um, When someone says, kind of on the spur of the moment, hey, let's put some harmonies on there, that generally means you're in for a long night, you know? (laughs) Like
0: extemporaneously to saying, hey, this, (laughs) this should be on here
1: the the last minute harmony backing vocal is one of the one of the secret money spinners in the studio business. It's right. one of the secret money makers.
0: Hey guys, gets get some because, shakers.
1: <laughs> yeah. The just because you can imagine that there would be some harmonies on there and that it would sound great, but then the hard part is picking out all the notes, figuring out who's going to sing which parts, right. arranging the whole thing. Yeah. Getting a performance, getting performances that you like, making sure that everybody is on the same page about what the intervals are. And like a lot of that stuff, you know, if you just do it haphazardly, it sounds terrible. And so it's a, it's a long slog to do that sort of stuff well. Uh, and so that, you know, you learn over time that those kind of last minute decisions can be some of the most taxing ones um and in, and as results you know and as far as the results are concerned the ge- the payoff is generally quite low like it's rare that that someone will will spontaneously decide to put backing vocals on something and then that is the thing that makes it great
0: yeah that, that makes, makes sure the song that's the, that's the thing
1: <laughs> but it's not uncommon for example to you know spend 20 minutes getting an ex- getting a take of the whole band and multiple hours trying to l- lay in backing vocals in a-, in a section of the song where the part is just being written on the fly and trying trying to do- make editorial decisions and execute them simultaneously and that sort of thing.
0: Right, so if it's something where it's considered just like a, a last-minute out-of-scope add-on, like it's not necessarily... Advisable. Yeah, the amount
1: of, the <laughs> amount of energy that you spend on things like that, relative to the amount of energy that you spend on the, the meat and potatoes of the record, uh, is often quite out of line. But then again, you know, like I said, I'm I'm happy to do whatever people want to do. And and part of you know, I guess part of being in the studio making a record is part of what you're paying for is the experience of having done it, right? Mm-hmm. And and I don't want to deny somebody the experience of having suffered through a four hour backing vocal session. You know?
0: If nothing else, it's an object lesson, right? And
1: it's an opportunity for them to grow as a person. You know?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's an opportunity. That's 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 a good way to phrase something that's uh that's not necessarily something you want to do. It's an opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> so if you had to right now, today pick like some sort of you've worked with a lot of amazing acts a lot of amazing bands and and artists who would you love to do a record with that you haven't and i don't i don't think i asked you this question before i might have but uh apologize if, if uh if i did
1: i i used to have a kind of you know wish list of people that i'd love to work with someday and And then I, at at some point I realized that I have already gotten to work with a lot of my heroes and I should be content and I Mm -hmm. should stop having this, you know, I stopped harboring this fantasy that I would, that, you know, I would also, you know, it's like you just had a nine course meal, you know, why do you also need a slice of pie, you know, kind of thing. (laughs) It's
0: Um, just one tiny little mince, sir. Yeah,
1: (laughs) exactly. Um... But I mean, sort of historically, I've I thought I, I've always thought I would could do a good job on a crazy horse record with Neil Young. I always oh, thought I, like nice. his aesthetic and my skills would probably mesh well. Um, same with Willie Nelson and his touring band. Like the Willie Nelson studio records are often, you know, quite stylized relative to his live shows. If you've ever seen him play with right, a band, it's, it's,
0: it's totally different him Playing thing. with yeah. band,
1: it's, it's just fucking fantastic, you know. Um, My favorite singer of all time is Bill Withers. I know he doesn't make records anymore, but oh, I think man. he probably has it in him to make another record and I would you know I would happily sacrifice a nut if I could do a <laughs> Bill Withers
0: record. I, that, that, I would yeah. I don't know if I'd sacrifice my a nut for myself, but I definitely would like to hear it. That's that's uh I mean if that's
1: the God. deal, if somebody says, All right, okay, here's we've worked it out, he's gonna do the record, but you're gonna have to lose one of the boys. <laughs> I would be like, Okay
3: <laughs> Left
1: one's been acting up.
0: It's a good run, Lefty. <laughs> uh, anyone else? I mean I know you've uh...
1: Um I was very fond of the aesthetic and the and the work ethic of ACDC. I thought I could have done a good A C D C record.
0: Yeah, that's and a that's a weird example though, because uh na- ship has sailed. Though. Yeah. It's not <laughs> it's not what it once was. I mean I'm sorry, like I don't want to be reductive, but like that that band doesn't doesn't uh doesn't float without Malcolm for me. It's the... and I say that yeah, as a huge I mean, fan, you know.
1: Yeah, Mal- Malcolm was the heart and soul of that band. He made rhythm guitar his life's work and it was a kind of a, a Zen monk about it, you know. And no one has ever been better. I can I'm I was trying to think the other day, like is there anybody who has reduced his task on Earth in the way that Malcolm oh, Young he, did
0: to do it like just the one thing? Oh, interesting. Okay, so yeah, yeah, so
1: yeah. that he could do it that perfectly. It's you know it's kind of like the um, what's his name? Jiro dreams of sushi kind of mm-hmm. thing. like there's just one thing that animates him, and it's playing rhythm guitar to rock and roll songs. And and the nearest examples that I could get of people who have distilled their thing to that kind of simplicity were James Jamerson, Mm. the great Motown bass player. Yep. Uh, and Johnny Ramone.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh,
1: I don't think there's very much else about them that's similar,
0: but I think, yeah, but definitely (laughs) those are definitely distilled essences. Uh, almost moonshine style. Uh <laughs> very 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 pure, very, very strong, very strong uh aesthetics and motifs. Huh. Well and that's I mean, can you imagine uh, can you imagine if A C D C like came in is, is is Axel Rose still singing for them? I don't even know and I don't really care, frankly. If they came in and said, Steve, we want to make a record with you, would you go, would you make that well- record?
1: Given that I don't say no very often, I would almost certainly say yes. But uh, you know, I have a feeling that it would. I mean, I'm I, I'm dubious of the. I would be dubious of it at the outset. But I have been dubious of things that ultimately have ended up being awesome. Previously.
0: So. What What if Axel I'll, really wanted to tie some scarves to the mic stand? Would that be allowed?
1: Sure. Whatever. <laughs> to your session, you can do what you like. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you I'll give you one example of where I was wrong about a thing. Um, um, shortly after the studio opened in '97 like or '98, um, I was approached by Cheap Trick, um, who at the time were kind of in a lull in their career, like they hadn't yet had the kind of the sort of Vegas revival that they enjoyed a few years ago, and they said they wanted to re-record the In Color album.
0: Ah, yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Start to finish. And I thought to myself, man, that's a terrible idea. You know, just... That's a kind of a tacit admission that the shit you're doing now isn't that good. If you're just going to go back and do a cover version of one of your own records, that seems super lame. That was my initial thinking about it, right? Uh, But... I'm not gonna turn up turn down the opportunity to record Cheap Trick. That's fucking of course I of course I'm gonna do it. Yeah, yes, yeah. absolutely. Yes, when? Let's get started, right? So they sh- they show up and they we set up and we get sound checked and they start playing the record and it's like a little private concert just for me. One of my favorite bands playing all their best songs and it sounds fucking amazing. Right. You know, I'm just I'm just ecstatic listening to them do it, right? And I instantly realized how wrong I was. It was totally, it's their band. These are their songs. They can do whatever the fuck they want. You know, I should, me even having an opinion about it is rude, right? And it, that ended up being a very satisfying thing, and I, I'm very pleased with the way it came out. Um, I later learned that the greater utility of that was that they were having a beef with their old record label, and there were a lot of opportunities for them to use the studio recordings of those songs in things like the, the rock band game or, uh, Oh
0: or sure. Of course our yeah. hero. And, yeah, yeah.
1: Like where those, those are, those songs had value, but only if they could use the full session master tapes and, you know, they could license those songs f- for stuff, but their old record label, owned those old masters and so they couldn't use them. So they re-recorded them and they suddenly had all of this new utility and they could put all that music out in all these different places and keep all the money. And that struck me as an extremely savvy move on their part. The byproduct of which was that I got to record a fucking cheap trick out.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's something worth within color too, the, the original recording. I mean, there's songs that the you know, there's production production aesthetics on there that are way different than how they play it live.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, and I'm I'm not going to say that they did it wrong the first time. They are they say pretty regularly that they were unhappy with the way that record came out. I think that's you know totally their prerogative. But when that record came out, there isn't a cheap trick fan who didn't love it. So I'm not gonna I'm not prepared to say that the one that they did here is better. But I am prepared to say that it's awesome.
0: <laughs> Which I think is fair, and and, and coming out from a position of a fan as well as always, you know, it lends a little credence to the uh, to to the comment, to be sure. So I guess last thing. Hey,
1: I don't know. I, I was going to say I don't know how much more time you need from me, but I'm going to have to get going fairly quickly.
0: Oh, I was just going to say. Actually, we're just going to wrap it up. I was I was going to say the last thing that uh, I wanted, to, and and again, thank you for uh, for taking the time. It's it's great to have you back. Uh, no problem you know it, it was too long since the last time P- appreciate you taking the time to speak with us uh and of course this is just me right now i've just used the royal we which is incredibly obnoxious but that's where we go uh the last thing i want to mention is that for the for this show for conor Transportonic reversal the end theme for all what is this episode 126 sure uh, w- w- whatever it is all, all, f- all five five and a half years however long it's been has been the end of radio by shellac and i th- I've always enjoyed hearing you speak about it, whether it's you know uh, speaking uh, sort of like a talk up on on a show or in mm-hmm. general about the the story behind that song and uh, where that's coming from and especially with mm-hmm. you know live iterations there's a you, you have like the the talk up part to ballroom blitz comes in sometimes like there's <laughs> there's different pieces of it that come in. so can you speak a little bit about into radio, uh, well, the, of
1: radio well I mean the the reason we wrote that song was like it there are often you know people prognosticate that the end of the end of certain things like oh you know the radio is going to be the end of live performance of music you know people no one's going to come out to the opera if they can sit at home and listen to it and that sort of thing and of course in the end radio ended up spurring a great interest in music and band leaders and live performance of music had a great heyday after the entrance of radio because more and more people got got to hear it and develop a taste for music, right? And there, there are a lot of things like that, you know, how television is going to be the end of radio because, you know, who's going to want to listen to Fibber McGee and Molly when they could watch them, right? Well, you know, television and radio coexisted for a very long time. It's quite likely that television will exit will, you know, terrestrial broadcast television will disappear in favor of all of the internet variations, while terrestrial radio will probably still survive because it's one of the only ways that you can hear music in places that are poorly served by satellite communications or digital communications or whatever. It's one of the only ways that you can engage with the world if you're, you know, in way out in disparate areas so there there've been a lot of predictions that there will be the end of radio right but uh sooner or later there will be the end of the, of radio people just won't be broadcasting anymore the you know music and news and everything else will come through other means and the it just it won't be seen as useful to have just someone talking on the radio and so that there will be an end of radio and at that moment the interplanetary communication that we have begun at the beginning of the radio era will end. And there, so there's the timeline for other civilizations to discover ours is going to be very short on a cosmic scale from the, the introduction of radio, the turn of the 20th century, to the end of radio, potentially in this next century, if you if your civilization wasn't listening to our broadcasts during that period, then you won't know that we that we were there. Um, and so I think it's, you know, it's perfectly reasonable that our civilization will go unnoticed when radio ends. That will be the last opportunity for somebody in a distant place to notice that our civilization was there. Um, but also, like this on a smaller scale, radio provided a kind of local celebrity that didn't exist in any other way. Like, local radio personalities, identifiable by their voices, were a feature of every town. Like, every town had, like, the one hip DJ or the one crazy sports guy or whatever – and, you know, if they went to the library or the supermarket in their town, they would be a celebrity on a scale, you know, of like on a movie star scale. But if they go three towns over where their broadcast wasn't listened to, then they they would lose all of that status. You know, the sort of parochial nature of the local radio celebrity was a thing of interest to me. And then the way... it. There, there used to be regional hits because radio stations were more independent and less syndicated.
3: Right,
1: and there were, you know, there were songs that would be, you know, top ten hits on radio stations in some parts of the country and unheard in other parts of the country, and that fascinated me. And all, and the the singing in that song is extemporaneous. Like, I, I tend to make it up. On the spot, there are certain themes that come back. But um, what's nice about having an open-ended format like that is, over the course of decades, I'll be able to explore or express all of those ideas um, without feeling like I have to get it all right, crammed into one set of lyrics. You know? Right. <laughs>
0: right. Yeah. Exactly. It takes takes some of that pressure off. <sighs> And it's also – I find it interesting, too, because there's a lot to read into with it uh, as far as – like, the line that always gets me is, you know, can you really call it broadcasting if no one's listening? And I think that works on multiple levels, uh, especially when you're working in a a format where you're largely – such as this one, where you're largely creating the radio show to be consumed later, uh, but in an archival form that people can discover like an old record uh, years down the line, which does happen –
1: so, for example, if you like, if you think about that moment when the last transmitter is shut down, the last announcer says his last goodbyes or whatever, and his farewell transmission, and then they switch the transmitter off. It's likely that no one will hear that because the reason that they bothered shutting it down was that people weren't listening. Right. So it's quite likely that for some time, the end of radio won't have a terrestrial like when radio comes to a final end. Quite likely that it won't have any terrestrial audience at all. That the only potential audience is the interstellar one.
0: Right, <laughs> it's beamed out into the cosmos. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting concept, and it's a it's a great tune. Thanks for uh, letting me have it be the closing theme for the oh, song. Hey.
1: <laughs> you know, we were doing it anyway.
0: <laughs> Steve, it's a it's a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, thanks so much for making the time, man. Appreciate it.
1: No problem. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. Take care. All right. So let's go ahead and play the tune that should be called This Is Why You're Incel." If you look at it as anything other than allegory, here's Prayer to God.
2: To the one true God above, here is my prayer. Not the first you've heard, but the first I wrote. Not the first, but the others were alone. Kill them Her she can go quietly By disease or a blow To the face of her neck Where her necklaces close Where her garments come together Where I used to lay my face That's where you ought to kill her In that particular place Him just fight I don't care if it hurts, yes I do, I wanted to fucking kill him, but first make him cry like a woman, no particular woman, let him hold out, hold back, someone or other might come and fucking kill him, fucking kill him. Kill him already, kill him. Fucking kill him, fucking kill him. Kill him already, kill him. Fucking kill him, fucking kill him. Kill him already, kill him. Just fucking kill him. Fucking kill him. Fucking kill him. kill him kill him just fucking kill him kill him already kill him already kill him amen Something like atonement The men I answer to Require answers of this town Get your folks together, Ted Shit is coming down Oddity.
0: Go. That was, a, that was a rock block. We had a Wing Walker there. Uh we had Crow, song, riding bikes, and Prayer to God, respectively. All uh, great songs by American Rock Band Shellac, <laughs> Shellac of North America. You uh thank you very much for listening to proton Reversal. We always thank you for it. We know you have many entertainment options in this wild and woolly world of the internet out there. Yeah, you've chosen to spend with us and and we appreciate that. Are we going? Is this thing on? Connor Neutron's Protonic Reversal is a show that happens every Thursday. 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, 6 Mountain, 5 Pacific. RadioNope.com, live-streamed. As well as podcasted radioneutron.com for the archives. We're getting caught up. Hold your horses.
2: As we come to the close of our broadcast day.
0: Remember, if you want to get episodes sooner, just subscribe. You will get them sooner. It's free, costs you nothing.
2: Farewell transmission.
0: Thank you, Steve Albini. Signing off.
2: Mr. and Mrs. America. All the ships at sea
0: If you want to find out more about Steve Albini Look up World Series Anyone of Poker of Slash Best winning grin ever
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: If not he's all over the internet Chillax, uh Touch I've and go You can find it Use your internets Come on What am I 50, Your dad
2: watts of power
0: Anyway thanks for listening as always Josh will be back next week Ionize the air And as always,
2: the phone turns sound into electricity. Catch you later. Can you hear me now? Out on Route 128,
0: the dark and lonely. Catch you later.
2: I got my rainbow. <laughs> Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? She's Radio.
1: I sorry, I had the do not disturb on the phone in here because I was doing a podcast immediately prior. So when ah. Greg paid me to say you were on the phone, I didn't hear him.
0: How professional of you. That's, yeah. that's, that's a really should smart I, idea.
1: Should I hang up and have you call back, or do you want to should I stay on the phone? Sorry, I had the do not disturb on the, sorry, phone, in the, disturb on sorry, the phone in here. Sorry, I had the do not disturb on sorry, the phone. I in the here. The I the here. Sorry, I had, in here. The sorry the I had the do not disturb on the phone in here. Sorry, the I had the do not disturb on the phone. Sorry, I had the do not disturb on the phone had the do not disturb on the phone